Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Hey everyone, Dave here to tell you about my show Cryptic Cocktail Party. Looking for a good time filled with laughter, intriguing tales, and a splash of the supernatural? Well, maybe I can help. Every week I bring on a rotating cast of guests to have a few drinks, share a few laughs, and take a dive into the unknown. Join us as we raise our glasses and tell the tales of some of the world's most famous cryptids, from the legendary Grafton monster to the elusive Dover demon and the enigmatic Mothman. But that's not all. Our party spills over into the world of the extraterrestrial, encounter the spine-chilling Flatwoods monster, the mischievous Hopkinsville goblin, and uncover the truth about infamous alien encounters. You need a dash of mystery? We got you covered. Delve into mind-blowing conspiracy theories such as the infamous Philadelphia Experiment and the secrets hidden within the Denver airport. Cryptic Cocktail Party is a weekly comedy podcast that guarantees laughter, curiosity, and a few surprises along the way. Cheers to the unknown. Well, Declan, what fun story do you have for us today? I wouldn't call it fun, but I'm going to be talking about Russell Weston. You are doing the brutal story, so yeah, it's probably not fun. Yeah. yeah. Russell Weston, huh? I'm going to be telling you about a UFO encounter. You are normally, you do a lot of our UFO stuff, and so I brought a UFO story today. Sweet. Out of Texas. Yeah. So the drink that I brought to go with this story is called the Cowgirl Cocktail. And I almost accidentally duplicated one of our cocktails because the town that this story takes place in is known as the cowboy capital of the world. And so I thought I looked up cowboy cocktails and it was the the first thing that popped up was the original cowboy that we did, I don't know, a million episodes ago. And I looked at it and I was like, that looks like a decent drink. And then I went, well, we've done this drink. So I went on the search for a cowgirl cocktail instead of a cowboy cocktail. So the cowgirl cocktail is one and a half ounces of vodka, three quarters of an ounce of Cointreau, half an ounce of Campari, half an ounce of grapefruit juice, half an ounce of lime juice with a lime rind for garnish. The steps are to add all the ingredients to a shaker and shake well, strain into a chilled glass and garnish. Are you ready? I'm a little hesitant. I I am as well. So I've never tried Campari until yesterday and had it, went and bought a bottle of this damn stuff for this cocktail, wished that I didn't because I thought... Yesterday I went, oh, I'm going to need to use this for something because it's a giant bottle. And it was 
so gross. I threw away the drink that I made. It was not this drink. It was a different drink, but it definitely made me go, oh, crap, I'm going to have to make this drink tomorrow with Campari and hopefully I don't spit it out on while we're recording. So we'll see. Are you ready? I don't know. I'm scared. Okay, it's not as disgusting not as bad. I thought it would be. No. There's so little Campari in it, I think that that's what makes it semi-drinkable. But it definitely is bitter. It is a bitter drink. And I think maybe that's the Campari and the grapefruit juice together. I don't... I, very bitter mm, things. I yes, Campari is what they use in Negronis, I think, and that's why I don't like Negronis, is because exactly it's a lot Which, of Campari. It just tastes like mm. yeah. I tried a Negroni and I hated it, and I forgot that it had Campari in it until last night. After I made the Campari drink that I threw away, I went and looked what other things you could make with Campari, and that came up with Negroni, and I went. Oh yeah. yeah. I hate Negroni. So now yes. I have a giant bottle of Campari. So if anyone is close by to where we're recording and where we live and you want Campari and you like it, let me know. Cause I'll give you a free bottle of Campari just so I don't have to look at it on my bar. Cause, or maybe I'll just find something else that might be good with it. I don't know. Maybe in an Aperol spritz. It might be okay as a Campari spritz. Yes, it is. And I still don't think that would be good. Because Aperol is sweet, and that's a sweeter drink. So Yes. Oddly enough, we went to lunch yesterday, and I got a drink that had Campari in it. It was a Campari spritz, but it also had a blood orange aperitif in it as well and i liked it and i drank the whole thing and i didn't think anything about it hmm. maybe the so, champagne helps cut it down or something it could have the the prosecco might have made it more palatable i don't know but i will say i'm not a huge fan of this bitter drink if you like bitter drinks then maybe this will be a good drink for you but i don't know So, on with my story out of Texas, where cowgirls and cowboys live. In January 2008, a small West Texas farming community became the center of a huge news story. Stephenville, Texas was a rural town of about 18,000 people in 2008. It's about an hour south of Dallas, Texas, and is known as the cowboy capital of the world, like I said before. And that is because it is home to the most professional rodeo cowboys and cowgirls more than any other place in the world. Agriculture is the leading industry for the town and the county, and it is ranked second for milk production in the state. 
At the time of this story, though, I believe it was ranked first for milk in the state. I don't know how you lose your ranking for milk production, but apparently they did. Many people feel Stephenville is an inviting town with a rich Western history. It is also the location of a large UFO sighting. Not only large in the number of people who reported it, but also the size of the ship. So in early January of 2008, around 50 people reported seeing strange lights in the evening sky at around sunset. It was described as faster than a bullet and larger than a Walmart. Yes, they actually described it as larger than a Walmart. Yes. Witnesses included police officers, a pilot, and local business owners. They said the mysterious ship hovered silently overhead for about five minutes with flashing strobe lights, then disappeared. The lights were described by multiple people as being very bright and compared the brightness to a welding arc. Some people saw the ship streak out of the sky while others noted that it seemed to just vanish. Within seconds after the UFO disappeared, two F-16 jets were seen racing through the sky behind it. Steve Allen, a pilot in the area, was in a field with some friends when he saw the UFO. He reported seeing the large craft speed away at an estimated 3,000 miles per hour, followed by a jet by fighter jets that were clearly outmaneuvered. He also stated that the ship crossed a distance in the sky in seconds that normally takes him 20 minutes in his Cessna plane. He estimated the size of the UFO at half a mile wide and a mile long. Over 40 people reported seeing the strange item in the sky. However, some were too shy to come forward at first. A local law enforcement officer, Leroy Gayton, also witnessed the UFO. He initially saw a glowing red light about 3,000 feet in the sky. Another witness, Claudette Odom, was at the top of a hill with several other people. Their visibility was about 20 miles in all directions. Claudette reported that they saw an object approaching the area at a high rate of speed just after 6 p.m., which in January is about sunset time for some places. I know it is actually for here. So January 6 p.m. sunset makes sense. When the aircraft stopped its approach. I'd say if it were a blue light, then it would be an actual floating Walmart. Because I'm picturing in my mind just this Walmart Supercenter flying through the sky like Hulk through it. (laughs) Right. No, the lights were red. Some described them as red, but most people described them as bright white lights. And multiple Mm -hmm. people compared it to a welding arc, which I thought was really odd that that many people, I mean, it was not just one person that said it was welding arc bright. It was several people that compared it to a welding arc. So maybe they do a lot of welding. welding Arcs are so bright that they can blind you. So that would be a very bright light. But I'm not a welder. Although I have seen welding arcs, that's not the first comparison that would come to my mind. So the fact that multiple people that were not welders per se, maybe some of them were, I don't know, but several people compared it. So I thought that was just like kind of an odd 
like I said, odd comparison, but several people did. So when the aircraft stopped its approach um, in Claudette's report, um, she said it approached, it hovered silently, and lights on the craft started changing. Initially, the lights flickered, then went to a solid, very bright light that shaped into an arch. Then it transformed into a single bright vertical line before splitting into two lines. As they were watching the object just hover, the silence was broken by the loud approach of two F-16 fighter jets at low altitude, and they flew directly towards the object. The military discounted the sightings and suggested that maybe witnesses had just seen sunlight reflecting off airplanes up in the sky, which is the dumbest explanation that I think could be given to a UFO sighting, but what do I know? Whoever gave that the- uh, description was listening to the song Airplanes by B.O.B., airplanes is that night night sky like shooting stars <laughs> maybe i don't know but it doesn't make any sense like a shooting star but <laughs> clearly no. this guy also right who knows it just doesn't make sense to me but <laughs> the near nearby air force base in fort worth initially claimed they didn't have any f-16s in the air that night and that their pilots didn't pursue any ufos so they said you guys just saw the sunlight reflecting off airplanes and no, we didn't have any F-16 jets in the air. So how could our pilots chase a UFO? Cause they were on the ground. However, about two weeks later, the air force changed their story. They turned about face and they said, Oh yeah, we did have about a dozen jets in the air over Stephenville that night. They claimed that their reversal in their story was just simply due to an internal communication error. Okay. Nice. I don't know how you can have a communication error. Did you have jets in the air? Yes or no? No? Okay. Pretty simple answer. Exactly. Nope, we didn't understand what they meant when they asked us if we had jets in the air. I don't know. The explanations sometimes are just wild. Residents who witness the object and the jets are, of course, questioning why the Air Force is changing its story. And, of course, they think that this means there's a cover-up. The international group that investigates UFO reports, uh, known as MUFON, went to Stephenville to look into things further. They were alerted to the sightings when they started getting reports from the area about the object and the strange lights. In less than a week, they received over 100 reports over the UFO sighting, which is an unusually high number for that organization. According to their records, over the years prior to a cluster of sightings, they had compiled over 550 reports of UFO sightings in the state of Texas between 1947 and 2007. So before this report in 2008, they had 550 reports. In November of 2007, from November to March of 2008, MUFON received over 300 new sighting reports. So over half of what they had previously gotten reported in Decades. 
MUFON held a meeting to gather the witness statements in January 2008. They believed they would get a few dozen people attending to, to tell or listen to the stories, but in reality, they had over 500 people show up. They collected over 50 reports at that meeting, some dating back several decades. So all the reports that they had got from 1947 to 2007, they didn't start tracking the stuff in 1947. It's just that some of the reports dated back to, I think they started collecting the reports in like 1990, but the people were saying, oh, back in 1947, I saw such and such. So that's how they compiled the reports. But then this sighting was like, this episode was a whole bunch. One of the MUFON investigators was a retired meteorologist. He was able to obtain and analyze a Doppler radar, radar graphic from the time of the January sighting. He noted uh, on that graphic a fast-moving target that was going an estimated 700 miles an hour in an eastward direction. According to him, it could not have been a passenger jet because um, it just didn't match up. He said it was possibly a military jet or an unknown object that was not transponding. Um, but he couldn't say for certain what it was. But he said it wasn't a passenger jet. Rather than just focusing on the sightings from early January, the investigators broadened the dates and considered clusters of sightings for several months from November 2007 to March 2008. Three law enforcement officers were among the reported witnesses. However, several of them requested to remain anonymous. Each one of these officers was in a different location, yet described the same object. So they were in different places around town, yet said they saw the same thing. So, and law enforcement officers are considered to be a little bit more credible because they're trained to observe things because they have to for their jobs. So, you know, they, they had a little bit more credibility than, you know, just somebody out milking a cow. Not all witnesses reported seeing an object. Several just noted the strange and bright lights, but some of those people did comment that they couldn't see an object because the lights were so bright. The cluster of sightings around Stephenville is considered to be one of the most credible sightings in recent history due to the number of witnesses and the overall credibility of some of those witnesses. And that, Stephenville UFOs. Interesting. I've never heard that story before. I got you one. I like <laughs> it when I can surprise you. Usually I'm the UFO guy, but right, I, I know. I know that one. Yay me. Get into Russell Weston. Real okay, character. Russell Weston. Russell was born on December 28, 1956, in Velmire, Illinois. It was a small town of only 900 people. He was a somewhat regular kid, nothing remarkable or strange. However, some people said that he was a little unusual and eccentric. So mm. he's a little bit of a Shire kid, but okay. he graduated high school in 1974 and shortly after moved to Ramini, Montana. 
He began to experience early signs of schizophrenia, which later developed into paranoid schizophrenia, and he was officially diagnosed on 1992. In 1992, sorry. His diagnosis came after threatening the life of a man in his town that he had a disagreement with. Oh. He was then put into a psychiatric hospital for 53 days, which led to his diagnosis. Okay. After the 53 days, he was let out and given some medication and stuff. Meds. Okay. He had some serious delusions, including Navy SEALs hiding on his property waiting to kill him, and that his oh. neighbor was a spy using his TV dish to spy on all of his activities. Okay. You know, tell some real. I <sighs> mental illness is so tragic when you. Th- I mean, it's just tragic in general. But when you think about like the paranoid schizophrenia, they really believe all of that, and I can't imagine yeah. what it would be like. I, it just it reminds me of like your grandpa and going through his dementia and he really believed that he saw the things that he saw. And it was just so sad to be like, you're just, you don't want to tell them that they're wrong, but you also don't want to play into the, yeah, you saw a snake coming out of the ceiling story. Well, it, it kind of, once you get that level of mental illness, it kind of bleds bleeds the like perception is reality thing where technically your reality is all that you perceive and you if you perceive a snake coming out of your ceiling then that's reality to you oh it 100 percent was his reality reality to him yeah so which is i wouldn't want to live like that No. no no thank you so in 1996 he went for a little uh, road trip, I guess you could call it. He bought a suit and began driving to McLean, Virginia, where the CIA headquarters are lo- located. Oh. He entered the headquarters and told the receptionist that his code name was Moon and that he needed to speak with the director immediately. Moon. He was interrogated okay. slash interviewed for about an hour before they determined he was crazy and let him go. Okay. So, yeah. A few years later, Russell eventually moved back home to help his parents after they experienced some damage from the Mississippi floods. I guess they were Mm. living on the Mississippi River. So they had a lot of, like, debris and stuff in their yard and a lot of problems. Um, He was showing some weird signs that concerned his family, though, when he moved back home. So the flood affected his father's property and knocked down most of his trees. But Russell, one day, uh, one day Russell's father got home and saw him chopping down the remaining trees that weren't uh, affected by the flood. And his dad oh. came running out. I was like, "What the fuck are you doing? Stop chopping down the trees that are left!" And he said right. that Russell was almost like in a trance and just like stopped, went inside, didn't really say much. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a few months after this little tree chopping, cheat, holy shit, huh. tree chopping incident. Good job. 
<laughs> uh, Russell's grandmother had a an issue with some stray cat stray cats in the neighborhood, and they were kind of going on her property mm. and shitting in the bushes, bushes and doing stuff that stray cats do. And she had mentioned this to Russell, but never specifically asked Russell to do anything about it. They were just having dinner, and she's like, "Oh, there's the damn stray cats." You know, like yeah. family's talking dinner, like yeah. But Russell took matters into his own hands. Stop. Russell grabbed a shotgun and proceeded to shoot and kill <gasps> fourteen stray cats, most of which oh, he my... buried, but he left a few in a bucket outside of his grandmother's oh. house. Is that a warning yeah. to the other stray cats? I guess. So. You think that? Oh my god! So. A little while after this, Russell went on another schizophrenic road trip, this time to Washington, D.C., specifically the Capitol building. Uh-oh. On July 24th, 1998, Russell walked into the Capitol with a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver. The Capitol police officer, Jacob Chestnut, was working the metal detector when Russell walked in the door. Uh, he was preoccupied with helping someone when Russell walked straight through the metal detector. Oh, Obviously, no. the gun in his waistband set the detector off. Right. And uh, Officer Chestnut asked him to stop and go back through the detector. Russell froze, did a 180, and shot Chestnut in the head <gasps> at point-blank range, killing him instantly. <sighs> yeah. Officer Douglas McMillan was nearby and immediately began shooting at Russell. The two exchanged fire before Russell ran into a crowded room. Oh. McMillan was unable to shoot at Russell without hitting an innocent bystander, so he just chased him. Witnesses said that they saw Russell run down a hallway towards a group of offices. Detective John Gibson, who was in plain clothes, was one of the was in one of the offices and told the staff to hide once he heard the gunshots. Gibson was waiting in the office when Russell burst in. Uh, he began shooting Gibson and fatally wounding him. But before Gibson passed away, Gibson put four rounds into Russell, which allowed two officers to arrest him. Nice. Good job. Russell died in that office. However, a doctor who happened to be at the Capitol was able to resuscitate him. Oh. About a year after the shooting, Russell was found not mentally fit to stand trial due to his schizophrenia. And apparently before the post-shooting happened, he had stopped taking his medication, which led to the shooting. Mm. He was admitted to a mental hospital where he sits to this day. And in 2001, he was given um, the basically the state forced him to take antipsychotic medication, whether he okay. wanted to or not. He got it. Yeah. intravenously injected Ooh. or whatever. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Super <sighs> crazy. Amazing. That the paranoid schizophrenia is terrifying. It is. I mean, it, it is similar to dementia. It's just worse, right? Yeah. Cause dementia, you get like yeah. these weird paranoid delusion things, but sometimes not, not everyone with dementia gets, hallucinations they a lot of times they'll get the the paranoia but um your grandpa just also was lucky and had 
hallucinations as well. And he called them his visions for a good couple of years, which for a while was, he knew that they weren't real and he would comment on, oh, I saw a cat walk across the room and I know that's not real. And it wasn't a deal. And his doctors would always ask him, do the, do the hallucinations scare you? And he was like, no, no, they're, I know they're not real. So I just want to know why they're happening because I, I'm seeing things that aren't real. And then finally at the end, yeah, he was seeing things all the time and he thought they were real. And he was seeing things like people in his yard and somebody driving. He thought somebody was driving a car into his house. And I don't, those kind of things just terrify me. I don't want that to happen to me. Hopefully we don't end up getting it, but I feel like there's a high chance. Unfortunately, I do too, which we're going to have to make a game plan for if that happens. (laughs) <laughs> okay if we both if you get dementia we'll start a dementia game show we'll find a couple other dementia people and we'll do like a truman show Ooh. thing where you we watch your whole okay. life and we get to see all the delusions and crazy things <laughs> oh but it would It'd really be, like be sad <laughs> it, i mean if it was if it was humorous i would okay, say we'll, yes we'll make sure to but... do weird things and then you'll have to try and decide if it's a delusion or not <laughs> oh yeah like we'll just slowly like cut like a quarter of an inch off of all the furniture so you think you're growing taller or something (laughs) oh man Uh, yeah it'll be a little game show for other dementia people it's all right there we go there we go workshop it a little bit before it happens yeah we're we're definitely going to need to workshop it a lot we're going to (laughs) have some time hopefully before any kind of symptoms start setting in on me Hopefully. Jeez. Well, do you have a chaser? I do have a chaser. So my chaser is a watch recommendation and it's based on, it's the story that I told. So I found this story about Stephenville UFO encounter on a show called Encounters on Netflix. And it's like a little four, I think it's four episodes. It might be more. I don't know. A docuseries about like UFO experiences and different UFO stories and stuff. And the first episode was on Stephenville. The second episode was on uh, the Zimbabwe story that you told Mm. many, many, many episodes ago on the aerial school. And that was super interesting. So yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a really cool um, little show on Netflix. So go check it out. Nice. What's your chaser? I also have a watch recommendation. It's a new movie nice. out on Hulu called The Mill. The it's Mill? It's got, um, yeah, M-I-L-L. Oh. It's got Little Rel Howery as the main actor, the one of the main actors in Vacation Friends. Okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's the husband, yeah. Yeah. So he, 
gets trapped in this prison, like this. It's super. It's a super trippy movie. But it, this dude gets trapped in a prison. He just wakes up in the prison one day. Oh. But it's not like a normal prison with bars. He's in a giant concrete cell with walls going like thirty feet up high and an open ceiling and he the only thing in the room is a one of those old fashioned like medieval mills that they had used to make grain. Oh and he has to do a certain number of rotations on the wheel every day or else he'll get a punishment. Yuck. Yeah. And he tries I don't to like break that. out and he gets in trouble yeah, for would... trying to break it. Yeah, it's super interesting. It's got like a crazy twist at the end and it Okay. I would recommend everyone watch it. It's a really solid movie. Nice. We'll have to check it out. Yeah. Sounds scary. It's not super scary, but it's a it's very dystopian. Okay. Dystopian stuff is scary to me because I don't want to think about like mm. that could be my reality someday. Because I don't well, want it, a real a dystopian reality. I Once know. Once AI takes over the world. Right. All right. Well, thanks well, for listening, everybody. Yes. I enjoyed hearing about that UFO story I've never heard of. Yeah. All right. Nice talking All to right. you, bud. Love you, Mom. Love you. Bye. Bye. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.